Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's online event at the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Laura Bazelon. I am a professor of law and the director of the Criminal Juvenile Justice and Racial Justice Clinics at the University of San Francisco, and I will be moderating the event today. I am excited to be joined by author, political strategist, and racial justice advocate, Heather McGee, to discuss her new book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Heather is the chair of the board for The Color of Change, a distinguished senior fellow at the progressive think tank Demos, and a regular media contributor. In The Sum of Us, Heather talks about how racism and a zero-sum mentality have been at the root of countless social problems and our reluctance to address them. The book includes stories of people from all backgrounds to buttress her argument that our country is breaking apart because of the entrenched and false belief that some must win, excuse me, that some must lose for others to win. Over the next hour, I'm going to talk to Heather about her literal, literal journey across America and her ideas about how to end the zero-sum game with a new vision involving radical compassion. And I want to ask as many of your questions as I can. So if you are watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and I will get to as many of them as I can later on. Thank you so much, Heather McGee, for joining us today. Laura, it's a real pleasure and an honor to be with you. I'm such a fan of your work, so I'm excited for this conversation. And, and thank you to Marcus Books uh, in Oakland for being the bookseller for today. And thank you to the Commonwealth Club, as always. It is 150% mutual. So <laughs> I wanted to start with one of the refrains of your book, and that is the refrain of the zero-sum game. And you mean something very specific. Can you walk us through what zero sum is when it comes to race and the fate of so many economic failures in the United States? Sure. I mean, I, I came at the journey that I took to write this book uh, from a place of, um, I'd say, frustration. Uh, frustration with nearly two decades working in public policy advocacy and law, trying to use research and lobbying, litigation, legislative drafting, advocacy to try to solve some of the big problems in the American economy. And uh, I, I ran for four years and helped build for nearly two decades before that. I think take focused on inequality. And, you know, we had some victories, but I have to say that, you know, as time went on, it became clearer and clearer that what I had learned in law and in economics was not explaining why we weren't solving these problems, why inequality was getting worse, why the country that invented the American dream was near the middle of the pack in, in our among our peer companies countries and actually achieving it. And it was a sense of, I got to find other answers and look into different disciplines to figure out what's really going on, why we can't, as I say in the opening line of the book, have nice things. Um, like universal childcare and healthcare and paid family leave and a well-funded public school in every neighborhood. And so that led me to a whole different discipline um, of academics and research than I had really uh, been involved in earlier. And one of the first most compelling ideas that came uh, I came across in my research was this idea of the zero sum as a deeply uh, adopted narrative, a story that says that there's sort of a fixed pie of well-being and that progress for one group has to come at the expense of the other. A dollar more in my pocket must mean a dollar less in yours. And this was, when I came across this uh, in the social science research, um, there were a bunch of studies showing that this was a very powerful idea, a way of seeing the world, a way of seeing American society and our economy, that it was a racialized idea that it's a racialized idea because the groups that are seen as competing are racial and ethnic groups. And it was a racialized idea because it was more commonly held, this zero-sum worldview, by white folks uh, than it was by folks of color. Generally speaking, we don't tend to believe that our progress has to come at white folks' expense. And when I learned that this zero-sum mentality was uh, significant, depending on how you measure it, uh, you know, the plurality or majority of white Americans view the world this way, it helped me make sense of something that wasn't making sense with the economic tools. Because economically speaking, 
we know it's not a zero-sum game, that in fact, inequality is bad for growth, that in fact, it's more like a, a regular game, right? That you want all of your best players on the field scoring points for your team, right? You don't want anyone sidelined due to debt, discrimination, and disadvantage. And so racial economic inequality costs the American economy, right? You had Citigroup coming out in 2020 calculating $16 trillion in lost GDP growth over the last 20 years due to the black-white economic divide. But once I realized that the sort of rational economic story of how we should all be able to prosper together... Uh, wasn't actually the the dominant story for many Americans in the sort of political majority, um, it started to make a little more sense to me. I feel like just playing on this theme a little bit, when we think about a game, a zero-sum game, it's always implying that somebody's winning and somebody's losing, as you say. And of course, when you see these policies refracted through a racial lens, your argument really is that everybody loses, that essentially... Policies that poll well and garner majority white support lose popularity when white people think that they're not the only ones getting the benefit of this bargain and that somehow that means it loses value for them. And I'm wondering how you can explain that that mentality is actually not only costing communities of color, not only costing marginalized groups, but also costing white people, even though they don't realize it. You know, I mean, this is a this is a tricky concept because, you know, folks often talk about different groups voting against their interest. And for me, I come from an economics background. My work is in economic policy. And so I'm, I'm looking at pure material economic interest. There are other interests that are served by uh, feeling like you are denying another group something, uh, even if that means you're losing it yourself, right? And there's sort of psychological interests. There's things like uh, sort of your relative uh, value versus your absolute value, the feeling of knowing that you have higher status than another group that has been, uh, you know, for for generations, um, the sort of marketed as, as the sort of bottom of a, a hierarchy of human value. So there are all of these other interests, and I want to acknowledge them. But speaking in terms of our economic performance as a society, of the fact that white Americans are part of an economy that simply has not been working for the majority of people over the past, what I call, you know, the inequality era over the last 40 to 50 years, I was able to really see material costs of racism for white people. Um, now, when I say everyone, uh, racism as a cost for everyone, I don't literally mean everyone because there is obviously a wealthy and self-interested elite that is uh, profiting quite well from our current uh, economic status quo of massive inequality, uh, self-interested elite that is actually selling these racist narratives around the zero sum. So it's sort of a, a, a um, an everyone uh, with, with a one uh, asterisk or distinction. But the point that I make throughout the book is that so many of our big economic problems that impact often the majority of white Americans um, even if it's disproportionately this economic problem impacting Americans of color, are ones where you can see the fingerprints of racism in our politics and our policymaking. And without racism in our politics and our policymaking, without um, this phenomenon I, I call drained pool politics, um, you actually would see a much more generous and economically thriving um, economic system in the U.S., you anticipated my next question. I want you to tell me about the drained pool. I want you to tell me about the literally drained pool and the figuratively drained pool. So this, my, my journey to write the Sun Voice was an actual literal one. I took um, many, many trips across the U.S. over the course of three years from California to Mississippi to Maine and back again multiple times. And one of my earlier trips was to Montgomery, Alabama. And there I walked the grounds of what used to be a thousand plus person, lavishly funded public swimming pool. It was one of these grand resort style pools built in a building boom of public amenities and public goods during the 1930s and 40s. Things like, you know, schools and parks and libraries, roads and bridges. And yes, these swimming pools, which were really seen at the time as this sort of reflection of a commitment to the idea that it was government's right and responsibility 
to ensure a decent standard of living for her people. This was a sort of New Deal public goods ethos, and it was really born out of the lessons of the excesses of the first Gilded Age, which we've now surpassed in terms of inequality. It was born out of the crucible of the Great Depression. And that public goods ethos was reflected in things that are arguably more economically significant than swimming pools, things like social security for the elderly, like a massive investment in housing that workers could afford. And on top of that, something really heretofore un. Uh, precedented, which was the idea of government playing a very heavy role in the subsidization and regulation of a mass home ownership vehicle, the the, the mortgage um, that would really create something we had never seen, which was middle class home ownership that workers could sort of pay off over time and have an appreciating asset, such an enormous part of the American dream and of our intergenerational wealth. Um, things like the New Deal commitment to collective bargaining, which was in many ways another public good that allowed the public to be able to bargain collectively for for more of the goods that they that they were creating and producing in the economy. Um, even the GI Bill, right, 1940s, uh, again another massive commitment to a decent standard of living for uh, the American people, and and really this public goods sort of paradigm worked economically, right? That was when we created um, the largest middle class the world had ever seen, the highest standard of living in the world at the time, what we sort of think of today nostalgically on the left and the right as this sort of moment of, of real shared prosperity in the American dream. But virtually everything I just described uh, was either explicitly or in custom and practice uh, for whites only, segregated whether we're talking about very explicitly like in the housing market that created so much intergenerational wealth where the subsidies and the developments and the mortgage market was all based on a very racist assumption, never substantiated, that Black people would be too dear a credit risk to be able to be a part of the mortgage market. And so the federal government uh, forced the denial, as we know, uh, of loans in areas that were marked as Negro areas, uh, redlining, uh, required racial covenants, excluding uh, sales to Black families in their subsidized housing, uh, you know, the, the subsidized private housing developments, uh, the Social Security Act excluded the two job categories that most Black workers were in, right? Uh, domestic work and agricultural work uh, in a compromise with the Southern delegation to Congress. Uh, the GI Bill, race neutral on its face, but because the benefits were filtered through often racially segregated education and housing sectors, many, many Black GIs uh, were unable to avail themselves. Even the collective bargaining paradigm, when we had the American Federation of Labor allowing whites-only unions and had a real sort of tradition of, of racially exclusive, both job discrimination and exclusion from uh, from labor, from bargaining units, uh, this whole sort of gift, right? This this massive uh, paradigm of free stuff, of largesse, uh, of taxpayer largesse to help create a thriving middle class largely excluded the Black people who contributed to it. And it wasn't until the civil rights movement when, in the wake of, Bo of Brown v. Board of Education, you really began to see courts begin to side with the claims that Black families were making, saying, you know what, it's our tax dollars that have been contributing to these public goods as well. And in the case of the public swimming pools, we want our kids to swim too. And that's when the desegregation orders became uh, started to roll in and in the case of the pools across the country, not just in the Jim Crow South, you had either with a whites only sign on the fence or just by custom enforced by intimidation and violence, a real segregated uh, system of public swimming pools. And the integration of public pools created a quiet crisis across the country. And many towns and cities um, decided to drain their public pools rather than integrate them. And so what does that mean, right? That means that they literally drained out the water and backed up truckloads of dirt. It means that a public good that was once kind of the prize of a community was destroyed. Uh, many towns sort of, you know, made them 
kept their pool but sold them to the YMCA for a dollar so that they could still uh, be a private entity and they could be a private entity and therefore uh, continue to discriminate. In Montgomery, Alabama, where I walked the grounds where this thousand plus person pool used to be, they sold off the animals in the zoo. They shut down the entire Parks and Recreation Department of Montgomery for a decade until 1970 rather than integrate it. Um, and, you know, uh, for the lawyers uh, and the people who are interested in, in constitutional law in the room, in 1971, there was a court case where the Supreme Court already sort of wanting to be out of the business of enforcing integration and desegregation ruled uh, in a really just bizarrely uh, convoluted uh, case of convoluted logic that, in fact, there was no constitutional harm in a city uh, destroying a public good rather than integrating it. Uh, because as they said, you know, Negroes were hurt at just the same as whites. And really that idea that the zero sum logic born out to into the real world would allow for this drained pool phenomenon for a public good, including the kinds of public goods that help to build the middle class, both literally and figuratively, uh, to be destroyed really is what we began to see in our politics. And for me, Laura, I, I, I grew up, you know, studying the economy in my career and really not having a compelling explanation for why the country that had like figured out the formula for widely shared prosperity turned their backs on that formula beginning really in the 1970s with the rise of neoliberal politics and economics with a, a really drastic turn away from government as a provider of uh, collective action solutions. Um, and this phenomenon of drain pool politics and the real radical shift away from the sense of the public once the public included all of the public by the majority of white voters was the sort of missing piece for me. I find the drain pool story to be so heartbreaking on both levels, on the actual storytelling level, when you're thinking about dump trucks backing up and, and filling in a pool. And when you think about how these policies that we know would benefit everyone are somehow verboten because people who aren't white are getting the benefit of them. It's, it's completely heartbreaking. And it's especially heartbreaking too. I don't know if you feel this way, but as a parent, because you know how much just public recreational grounds are a way of building community and having your children interact with other children and form these relationships. And we all want to believe that our communities are improving, that they're getting more diverse, that our kids are having more chances to enrich their lives and meet different people. And this idea that because everybody is being punished, it's constitutional to take away that public good is is deeply upsetting on a number of levels, particularly when you really think about wanting something better for the future and it seeming to go backwards. Um, I just wanted to just for one second, a little bit divert away and ask you a question. This is a, a beautifully written book. It's also a beautifully illustrated book. And the cover is a child diving into a pool. Every chapter begins with an illustration. And I'm wondering how you conceived of that and what made you decide to go to go in that direction with the artwork. Oh, that's a great question, Laura. Thank you. Um, this is the first time anyone's asked me about the chapter illustrations, actually. So, you know, I... Uh, I, as I said, I sort of developed my career in the world of white papers, right? <laughs> that don't have a lot of art, right? Uh, in the world of, you know, uh, legal briefs and, you know, legislative testimony and all of that. And I wanted this book, A, I wanted for the research that I took to, to write this book to take me out of that world and into the world of people and emotion and stories and characters. So that's why there are so many just people in the book whose lives and whose uh, struggles really illustrate uh, uh, and illuminate the, the themes that are in the book. And then I also wanted the audience for this book to be different, right? To be people who would never pick up a white paper, who would never watch a C-SPAN testimony. Um, people who are looking for uh, a more emotional way to understand what ultimately is a, is, you know, an economic argument. And so... Uh, I was very opinionated about the cover, right? Some authors are not so opinionated or their editors don't let them be as opinionated as, as my editor, Chris Jackson, did. Um, but from the beginning, I made a Pinterest board that said, you know, this is what I want. The uh, These are the types of images and covers I like. These are the types of images and covers I don't like. I didn't want it to read um, 
when you looked at the cover as a, an economic book, I wanted it to read almost as a work of literary fiction, something that um, different kinds of people would be would be drawn to. Um, I didn't want it to feel like you had to have a JD to read this book, or you had to like be a Wall Street Journal subscriber to read this book, right? I wanted it to be a the kind of book that helps parents and and families, um, you know, really understand just the world that we all live in. Um, I wanted the cover to be art. I wanted it to illustrate the world that we, uh, the sort of path not taken, right? There were some versions of it where the cover could be a drained pool, right? Which is, if you picture it, it's like a very haunting sight. And there are so many um, examples of it. Um, there are literally examples of, you know, where you see lawn with a the... Um, you know, the, the handlebars for where you, you know, climb into a pool still sticking out of a buried, covered up, grassed over pool. There's a couple of those in Mississippi and Tennessee. So it could have gone that way. But I wanted, because the book is hopeful, and because I, I left my journey to write The Some of Us more hopeful than when I began, I wanted the cover to illustrate kind of what we could have, this integrated pool, white boy jumping into a pool that a black girl is, you know, is in already and is climbing out of to take her turn at the, at the diving board. That was really important to me. And then uh, a friend, Frances Talcard, a really beautiful illustrator, watercolor illustrator. Um, I reached out to her kind of at the last minute and said, you know, I would love for there to be art throughout the book. And can you um, come up with an illustration? We worked together over a really sort of condensed period of time to take sort of a central metaphor from each chapter and have it be a watercolor at the beginning of each chapter. I love that idea of collaboration. And also it meant that she just had to read the book so closely to kind of draw out what was really the heart of each chapter and turn it into a picture. And I like the idea too, of trying to move away from something that looks very dry and economic because the arguments that you're making are important, but they're also, they're deeply human. And I think part of what is so readable about the book is that you go on this literal journey across the United States and you talk to people in the United States about their experiences with economic failures and systemic racism. And I was wondering if you could just maybe share one of those stories with us today, one that was particularly resonant for you. Oh boy, there's so many. Um, I guess one of the ones that really comes to mind, um, also because I've I've recently been back in touch with this with this woman, is this woman named Bridget uh, Bridget Hughes, who uh, was a lifelong fast food worker in Kansas City. Um, she, uh, you know, really grew up very promising future, super smart, National Honor Society. But she grew up working class, right? And it became clear when her mother got sick that there just needed to be more income in the family. And so instead of going to college, she started taking shifts at the kind of ever-present, ever-available kind of basic American job, which is in fast food now. And that job is exactly the kind of poverty job that nearly half of adult workers have in the U.S., the job that you know, doesn't ever pay you enough to, to climb your way out of it. That really keeps you on a, a hamster wheel um, that creates costs like transportation and childcare when she had a family um, that you're sort of kind of almost paying to work, right? Like it feels like you are um, really never getting ahead. And so she never ended up going to school. And, and, you know, 15 years later, she was still making minimum wage as the burger flipper, right? The most derided kind of identity in the in the economy. As Demos Research had actually uncovered one of the most unequal industries in the nation where there's a thousand to one average CEO to worker pay gap because the pay is so low and the money at the top is so um, is so high. And so I met Bridget in Kansas City and she told me about her transformation, about how she had gone from really uh, blaming herself on a profound level for having sort of never lived up to expectations for, for ending up at the bottom of the barrel of the American economy. Um, she also, because she's white of Irish descent was raised in a kind of narrative world between the media she consumed and some of the kind of uh, stories and, and talk among her family um, in a way that wasn't like a harsh racist way, right? It was just sort of 
you know, calmly adopted some of the stereotypes that um, are so prevalent in our society. She uh, believed that immigrants were, you know, taking the good jobs, that that's why um, there was this decline of the middle class. She believed that, uh, you know, Black people were, were just as likely to be, you know, lazy and on welfare as they were to work. She believed that, as she blamed herself, uh, Black people and immigrants, right, for what was going on. And as she told me, you know, it wasn't until one day that she was invited by one of her coworkers um, to go to a meeting uh, with this group called Stand Up KC, Stand Up Kansas City. And she'd heard that they were um, going to start agitating for a $15 minimum wage in Kansas City. And as she said, you know, she thought it was crazy. She said, they're never going to pay people like me $15 an hour. But she went to the first organizing meeting anyway. And when she was there, she heard uh, a Latina worker stand up and, and tell her story like in the, in the circle. Uh, and her story was one that Bridget saw herself in. Uh, of having three kids in a two-bedroom house with bad plumbing, of feeling like no matter how much she worked, how many shifts she took on, she would never be able to get ahead. So Bridget said, you know, I saw myself in her for the first time. And she signed up and she started to organize with Stand Up KC. And she became a real leader uh, in the Fight for 15 nationally. She says now, you know, she realizes that it's not about us versus them, right? That zero sum again. But in her words, she said, you know, it's not about us versus them. In order for us to come up, they've got to come up too, right? Speaking about immigrant workers and other workers of color that she used to really want to distance herself from. Um, and she says, you know, as long as we're divided, we're conquered. Um, that story of transformation um, particularly when in contrast with so many of the other stories that I uncovered of, of workers really having those narratives that said, you know, blame yourself, blame the guy next to you, as opposed to see that this is a collective action problem and that together you will always have more power than you will if you fight alone, right? The, the name of that chapter is No One Fights Alone, which is an old labor saying, Um Bridget's transformation was something that was just really powerful to me and, and, and she's stayed with me. One of the other people that you feature that stood with me was the woman who dove back into learning French and we'll get to that story in a minute, but I wanted to ask you about the role of government and you argue that government can and really has to be part of the solution. And, you know, it seemed briefly like there was an opening to do something in particular about our very tattered safety net with the Build Back Better legislation. And we have the Democratic president, we have slim Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate. And that bill, which would have, among other things, subsidized daycare, extended the child tax credit, it would have provided free preschool and even community college, it seems like it's dead, basically. At least it's been declared dead. And I don't know about you, but I found that incredibly depressing because it seemed as if this was as close as we were ever going to get and it was right there and now it's gone. And I guess I'm just wondering, you did write a hopeful book. Do you still feel hopeful about the role that the federal government can play given our you know, our longitudinal history, but then also our, our recent history? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, you know, let me let me just explain in answering that the the link, which was is not obvious. It's intuitive as anyone who's grown up in our politics over the past 50 years, but um, it wasn't until I really dug into the political science and to the data that I really understood the link between anti-Black and anti-Brown racial resentment and anti-government sentiment, right? So that's obviously what I'm saying when I talk about the drained pool. I didn't realize, for example, that in 1956 and 1960, two thirds of white Americans believed that government ought to guarantee a job for anyone who wanted one, who couldn't find one in the private sector and guarantee a minimum level of income below which would no family should fall, right? These are pretty radical ideas in today's politics, right? A federal job guarantee and a universal basic income was popular with nearly 70% of white Americans in 1956 and 1960. But by 1964, that share had fallen nearly in half to just about 35% and has stayed low ever since. And 
you know, when you see that kind of a, a drop, you really have to go beyond the spreadsheet and ask, well, what happened between 1960 and 1964? 1963, March on Washington, which was for jobs and freedom and which included as part of the really small set of demands that mostly Black activists brought to the mall, a job guarantee, a federal job guarantee, and a universal uh, and a national living wage. 1963 was the year that President Kennedy went on a media blitz around civil rights, finally really associating his party, the party of the New Deal, with civil rights. And of course, it was after uh, that, uh, you know, his successor, Lyndon Johnson, uh, made good on, on the promise of the 63 camp- campaign summer that we really uh, saw uh, after signing the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act that Johnson would become the last Democrat running for president to win the majority of white voters to this day. And so I say that not for partisan reasons, but just to show how sort of ideologically the idea of really broad white support for government to play the role that it had played in their lives, often invisibly, right? You know, you don't really pay attention to government when it's giving you a tax credit. You don't really pay attention to government when it's making public goods that you may not even think of as government, right? Whether it's libraries or or colleges or, you know, a regulated mortgage market, right? Um, but that really turned and we began to see a new politics which associated the resistance to civil rights and integration with kind of a a market, a pro-market ideology, right? Because government was the one who was both, you know, doing the forced integration and the one who could, had the power to take on corporate wealth um, and corporate uh, greed. And so that really, that sort of, confluence of racial resentment, of dog whistle politics, and of uh, pro-corporate policies, right, of of politicians running on culture wars, degrading government, uh, degrading communities of color, and then governing with tax cuts and deregulation. That's like, that's the politics that I've known my whole life, right? I was born in in the first year of the Reagan presidency. And, and, And so to come back to that question of hope, you know, I finished writing The Sum of Us, the original version, the hardback in November 2020, right after, you know, Biden was declared the victor. And I was really hopeful. I was hopeful about the mass consciousness raising of the summer of 2020. I was hopeful about the possibility of the pandemic, which reminds us that there is such a thing as society, right? That we do need each other. Um, that that had really just swung the fulcrum towards okay, let's give permission to government to solve these big problems that we simply can't solve on our own, right? This was such a dramatic illustration of the need and the CARES Act doing unprecedented levels of, uh, you know, in in our lifetimes of of stimulus and of, of government support for the economy and for people, right? The afterword to the paperback version is something that I wrote, you know, uh, last summer into the fall, which really does address both the reasons for ongoing hope, right? I um, I did not think that this administration was going to include in its agenda basically the list of nice things that I open up my book with, right? The things that have been elusive to American families for so long, like the basic decent things uh, in life that so many of our peer economies are able to provide for their people in a collective way with a fraction of our wealth the lit things that you just listed that are really the the parts of the Build Back Better agenda, which get majority support in this country. So that, A, represented a, a paradigm shift within the Democratic Party, right? As someone who's, you know, very um, avowedly a centrist to say, you know what, we, we've got to clean house, right? We've got to take care of our people. We've got to refill the pool of public goods. We've got to take care of our declining infrastructure and both our hard infrastructure and our human infrastructure. That to me was a, a victory because the worst periods of our economic politics have been when both parties have been unwilling to look to co- collective solutions to collective problems, right? Um, and so that felt like a victory. Um, the fact that it, you know, basically two members of the president's party were able to stop an agenda that had majority support in the country, that had, you know, super majority support among the party is a frustrating sign that so many, honestly, of the vestiges 
of the unequal democracy that was sort of rigged from the beginning, in fact, to inflate the slave power in the balance of our federalist system are still costing us, right? Um, the Whether it's the Senate, the Electoral College, the filibuster, um, you know, the system of apportionment, all of these things, the system of voter suppression, which allows uh, uh, for a, a lot of sort of political hubris about how just how far out of step with the majority um, politicians can become, all of that um, really, I think, is another example of systemic racism in our democracy, making it harder to win the kinds of policies that would help all of us. I'm it's a frustrating moment, right? I mean, I, I, I grieved um, for uh, the Build Back Better bill um, for just how much easier Americans' lives would be, how much, um, you know, just things like the child tax credit, uh, you know, 41 million more children falling into poverty when it, when it was not renewed. Um, that's, it's, it's unconscionable. Um, and I am deeply frustrated that our national politics seems to have really swung to a place where the exact kinds of culture war distractions, the exact kind of zero sum politics uh, that I talk about in the book seems to be working more than it should to cleave white Americans from common solutions, right? Where we've got um, a real racial politics around the backlash to education about racism and sexism in our schools. Um, uh, We've got the politics around masks and vaccines, which has become very partisan and very racialized, actually, um, sort of through this anti-government filter, right? This government overreach in public health, um, where you see, again, white survey respondents with higher levels of anti-Black racial resentment being far more likely to be opposed to vaccines and masks, um, where you've got white nationalists organizing around school boards, masks, vaccines, and critical race theory, right? This confluence of things where government and the public and the sense of being in society with one another and and being the real fulcrum, it it is a scary time. Um, You know, not to mention, you know, the the war that we uh, are are now in or possibly in, the war that is now happening on the global stage, you know, by someone who's... um, who has been a force for division and disinformation in American politics, particularly along lines of race, particularly understood, Putin did, the way that um, racism was our Achilles heel uh, and so much of the disinformation in our electoral cycles that's been traced back to Russia has had to do with race and and Tifa and Black Lives Matter and all of that. Um, And where you're seeing a shocking number of white elected officials being pro-Putin because of a sense that he is a standard bearer in the West against multiracial democracy and for sort of white Christian nationalism. Um, that is, it's, it's very scary. It's uh, really underscoring the core themes in the book, but it's, um, it's, it's a scary moment. I'm still a hopeful person about the long arc. I'm a hopeful person about what can be done at the local level. But but I, I'm with you, Laura, that this is um, a moment where we could have had so many nice things. And a combination of uh, racist ideas about government and public benefits and uh, corporate greed um, and, and corporate pressure uh, has, has really snatched them away for this moment. There are a lot of questions for you in the chat. So I think I probably only Let's have one, one Laura question left. I'm going to squeeze in my last one. Um, and maybe this isn't exactly apples to apples, but I'm wondering what you think about this. You and I both went to law school, me a little earlier than you, I think. When I went to law school and growing up, I was really taught that the federal courts are where you go to vindicate your constitutional rights. And I hope this doesn't sound overly cynical, but in my experience litigating over the past 20 years, federal constitutional rights, at least in criminal law, are where rights go to die. 
And what has kept me going, kept me hopeful, is what's happening on the state level, at least in some states, including where I live now, California. And, you know, a lot of your journey, it's intensely local. I thought some of the most hopeful stories in your book, they come at the end, um, particularly your time in Lewiston, Maine. And I wanted to return to the woman who is once again learning French in a very in a very interesting way that I don't think she ever could have predicted. But my point in bringing this up is that I just wonder if at this moment of intense frustration with our national politics, if you see things happening on a state level or even on a local level, we talk about these immigrant communities and how there's this real grassroots support for some of these folks to become politically active, assert political power, but also form coalitions. And since I have to uh, yield to all the questions from our audience, I, I really did want to sort of end on asking you to weigh in on that. What do you think about state and local solutions that are sort of bubbling up to the surface? I mean, you're exactly right that um, both in the book and actually in the year since the book was published, I've really focused on finding hope at the grassroots um, where despite, uh, you know, our national politics and even sometimes despite, you know, politics at the state level in the example of Lewiston, Maine, um, people in community are saying, you know what, as they have throughout our history, are saying we need each other. And we've got to find common solutions to our common problems. We've got to stand up for one another. And, and that's this phenomenon that I write about in the book as the solidarity dividend, the idea of these gains that we can unlock, but only when we come together across lines of race and origin um, to find our collective power to solve problems, things like you know, high, higher wages and, and cleaner air and better funded schools. I tell these local stories throughout the book. Um, the story, uh, Cecile Thornton is the woman that you keep coming back to. Um, she's a Franco, a descendant of the sort of the Francos in, in Maine, right? The uh, biggest group of folks from away uh, over the past hundred years who are Franco-Canadians, who were mill workers, Catholic mill workers, very discriminated against historically. And she really assimilated out of the sort of language of her childhood, as so many people did, um, sort of into whiteness, into Anglo culture. And yet in her retirement was very isolated and wanted to reconnect with the language of her childhood and, and found that the kind of white Franco community had all kind of traded it away. Uh, and there wasn't this sort of community there, but she was able to find in Lewiston, Maine, this quote unquote dying mill town, uh, Francophone community that were African refugees and immigrants um, who had been part of the growing prosperity of this town and had really turned it around. And the relationships that she built um, were just one example of the kind of cross-racial coalition that is the backbone of a new politics in Maine, um, where you're starting to really see Somali and other African immigrants not only contributing to the economic revitalization of some of these rural places, but also to, to politics um, and to the rejection of a very zero-sum divide-and-conquer politics by their uh, governor, uh, who was sort of a, a mini-proto-Trump, Paula Page, um, who did things like veto Medicaid expansion five times while, you know, railing against Im illegal and refugee immigrants, uh, you know, sort of He also on had the some priceless racist comments that I just oh, yeah. burned into my brain. It's just, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable, right? I mean, it's, uh, but it was, it was sort of a proto, proto-Trump, right? We, we didn't know that that kind of political language was, was coming for us, uh, writ large. Um, and it's funny because I just went back to Lewiston, Maine um, two weeks ago um, because right now I'm back on the road. Um, I am on the road going back to some of the places in the book that gave me such hope and inspiration that we can unlock these solidarity dividends. And then we've found uh, eight more places uh, where we can tell similar stories of multiracial coalitions. And we're doing that for a podcast that is going to come out this summer. Um, it's being produced by Higher Ground, which is the Obama's production company. And I'm just going back out on the road and telling stories in a time of deep division and rancor around race and about place and belonging, finding these hopeful stories of cross-racial coalitions um, in the most unlikely places. So that has been, for me, a real reminder that throughout our history, 
you know, the structures that concentrate power and that make the zero sum an extremely profitable story to sell have, you know, have always existed, but so too have people who have fought back. And right now I think we're really seeing a renaissance of that. I am really looking forward to this podcast and I can imagine that making it while a lot of work has probably been incredibly exciting and wonderful. So congratulations. Okay. So the questions, um, one question is you, you just talked about and described the solidarity dividend. Is there something that people listening to you today can do to work towards that solidarity dividend? Just small things that we can all do on an individual level to feel like we're part of this bigger solution. That's such a great question. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I really think as I've been traveling the country virtually and in person, you know, some people have said, you know, and I think the sort of national narrative as well, there was this big uprising in the summer of 2020, all of this mass consciousness raising and it's, and it's dissipated, right? I really think it has settled into the fibers of community where people um, have decided that the way to really be a part of uprooting systemic racism is to pick an issue, a local issue, whether it's how schools are funded or uh, the vestiges of racial uh, segregation in our housing codes, right, that that ban uh, anything but single family housing, whether it's uh, the school to prison pipeline and discipline in their schools, whether it's what kind of uh, curriculum their schools are adopting, um, whether it's creating more public goods and integrated social uh, clubs uh, in their in their community. This is the type of thing that I've been hearing more and more people doing and doing in a way that intentionally gets them in multiracial spaces and in coalitions. And, you know, it can be a small thing uh, about, you know, really your built environment, you know, your public parks, your public community gardens, uh, you know, your your resources that are shared in community. Uh, but it can be a bigger thing, like advocating around issues of criminal justice at the county level, getting in progressive DAs, um, things like that. Uh, but it's really about remembering that, citizenship is something that we have to leave time for and that finding ways to do that activism in relationship with other Americans for whom Americans and aspiring Americans for whom life has been somewhat different uh, and who are seen differently um, is really like, that's where the power is. This question is about the role that unions play in your research about racism and equality. And I'm really interested in this because it seems like after decades of atrophy, unions may be having a moment. There's been coverage recently of at least localized unionization efforts against Amazon and Starbucks, John Deere, walkouts. And so I'm curious, I'm curious about your answer to this question. So this is, I mean, we are absolutely in a renaissance of collective bargaining and labor organizing and just labor consciousness among the American public. Um, you know, when I wrote the book, the public opinion data, you know, was really showing um, what has been a 40 year decline, right? That the peak of American support for labor unions was in uh the in 1959, I believe, um, or 1963, I can't remember, it was one of those years. Um, and that it had really been another one of those drained pool stories, right? Where the more that labor unions became associated with civil rights, as they did in the March on Washington and, you know, uh, with Dr. King, the, the less popular they were, particularly with white Americans. Um, and, you know, I could go on and on about that, but right now we're having a very different moment. And I think it is, it is the impact of things like the fight for 15, right. Which didn't wait for a union contract and just said, we're going to have, um, you know, we're going to have people who are at the bottom of the ladder in our economy risk being fired and walk out on day-long strikes, rolling strikes across the country. And it, you know, it brought adjunct professors who were making less than $15 an hour and retail workers of all kinds and healthcare aides, right? It brought this consciousness that we deserve more uh, and that they're in doing so in groups and in numbers, you can actually have the power and the courage to change things, which is a very different from the dominant kind of individualistic 
uh, narrative about the American economy that's been ascendant over the past 40 years. I think that created a massive consciousness shift in the country, as did, you know, just the galloping inequality, right? The fact that the pandemic um, saw billionaires uh, increase their wealth by such a tremendous amount while everyone else was really suffering. The concentration in our economy, the idea um, of so many small businesses and even medium and big size businesses, you know, um, you know, losing out to a handful of players in each of our uh, industry arenas. That is what is changing consciousness. Um, you know, these movements are often led by people of color. Um, right. And and so I think there is this um, a really interesting dialectic between um you know, racial justice and labor organizing and economic justice. Um, But right now we are at a Renaissance moment, right? All fall when I've been on the road, I would see strikes. I've never seen that in my life, right? I, you know, I've never been driving from the airport and seen picket lines at John Deere. I've never, you know, like, it's just, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, And of course, again, Washington can do a lot to make it easier for people to join a union. uh, And that would do, you know, that one slice of the economic benefit for working in middle-class families um, uh, of the Build Back Better Act could probably be achieved by a massive uptick in collective bargaining so that workers could private sector, in the private sector, could, could, could bargain for those kinds of wage and benefit increases on the job. So we had a historic announcement today, and I think I would be remiss if I did not ask you about your reaction to President Biden's Supreme Court nomination of U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. It's really exciting. It's really exciting for a number of reasons. Um, It's exciting because she's been a defense attorney, right? And that is just so cool, criminal defense attorney. Um, That is just so cool given... um, uh, you know, as you you well know, right, how how far uh, uh, away from um, true true justice uh, we have gone, particularly in the federal courts, when it comes to the rights of, of incarcerated people, prisoners and their families um, in this era of mass incarceration. Uh, it's very exciting to think that our country's highest court will begin to have some of the... Um, connection to all of our communities uh, that it really should. Um, It's exciting for, you know, representation for, you know, young girls of color to see that they can reach those highest heights, right? The gender imbalance that we have uh, in our decision-making halls of power throughout the United States is just you know, wildly problematic. Um, and so this is a big step forward. Um, I, I'm, I feel very strongly that we need to expand the court to give uh, future Justice Jackson a lot more uh, uh, fellow justices to work with who are more reflective of the demographics, but also of the ideology of the American people. You know, we are really in a time of a real capture of the court by a corporate uh, and racially reactionary wing uh, of one of our parties. And it's going to be problematic for a very long time if we don't do that. Um, But today is absolutely a day to celebrate and to organize and to fight to make sure that she is confirmed. I'm right there with you. Um, another question is, can you share your thoughts about teaching critical race theory in the schools? You touched on this and the conservative movement to push back and incite fear and division. I mean, this does seem like it is very much an issue of the moment and it has these wide reaching repercussions for dividing people more generally. Yeah. Um, I write about this in the afterword in the paperback version because it really is, um, I see it as zero-sum politics. I see it as drain pool politics, right? So instead of the Republican Party acting in a bipartisan fashion to provide paid family leave, which is popular with the majority of Republican voters, right? Um, Or free pre-K or, uh, you know, all of these things that are actually quite popular uh, across the country, they have stonewalled that, which is what families really need, right? What is keeping working families up at night? It is not, uh, you know, the kids 
uh, learning about Ruby Bridges and Dr. King, right? It is about, you know, whether they can afford childcare and the cost of college, whether they can afford uh, to take care of their aging parents, right? All things that could be addressed in the Build Back Better uh, Act. And so it is a political ploy to divide and distract. Um, it is a political ploy to scare white parents into thinking that it is a zero sum, that your kid can either learn Black history or learn their history, right? Um, that somehow racial justice is a threat to white children. Um, and it is drain pool politics because it's also scaring white parents away from an integrated public good, right? Uh, from public schools and saying that public schools are not safe for your white children. Um, and, you know, and it's so cynical and disheartening to see it happen at a time when schools are, you know, struggling so much and they've been through so much. Um, I really do think this is part of the long-term anti-public agenda, um, and an agenda to, uh, in as much as it is successful as it has been in a dozen states, shockingly, even when the bills are not popular, um, they, because of our unequal system of representation, they, they still have been able to pass the legislatures in these states. Uh, you know, who's going to really suffer from not learning a holistic view of American history? Who is going to uh, be rendered ignorant of the forces in American history that have tried to oppress and divide and who are at it again today? right? It is mostly white children, right? And so um, this is really, for me, an example of so many of the themes in, in The Sum of Us, of the zero-sum politics, of the drain pool politics, and of the way in which, as I say at the end of the book, you know, the truth really will set us free because it allows us to see how racist politics have gotten us to where we are, to see and be able to understand the lies, the zero-sum lie and other related lies, and see who's profiting from the sale of those lies. And when that's what history teaches us. That's what a holistic history teaches us. And when young people in the most diverse generation in American history don't have those lessons, they are rendered more vulnerable to the increasingly well-funded and um, hateful propaganda uh, that is trying to make them fear their fellow Americans. We have time for one last question, and I want to end with this one. Heather, what are you the most hopeful about in terms of changing the conversation that we're having about racism and also just achieving economic equality more broadly? Um, I am most hopeful that the multiracial majority in this country has consistently now chosen uh, the politics of hope versus the politics of fear. Um, that despite the structures that inflate an increasingly radical minority's voice in our politics, the people uh, of this country are largely understanding in a way that has not been the case for a number of generations that we do need each other and that it is not working to try to go it alone on every single aspect of American family life. And that, you know, 88% of the country believes that we need to teach all of American history, the struggle and the overcoming, the, the mistakes and the triumphs, um, that this sort of increasingly radical minority that is willing to resort to political violence, to misinformation, disinformation, and, and antisocial uh, behavior in the realm of public health and education that that is just not the majority of the American people. Um, and even though there is sort of a, a car wreck fascination and sort of rubbernecking of needing to want to see what is going on um, with so much of this reactionary organizing and politics, it's still not the majority. Um, and that we can, if we can hold on to um, the promise of representative democracy and keep fighting for it as we have always had to, 
to make it real in this country, um, that we really can become this great example of a multiracial democracy surviving and thriving um, with all of the wealth and the resources of our society and for that next generation, particularly of children, as you said when we began, Lara, who are already living in the America that we're becoming, where there's no racial majority, but that doesn't mean um, you know, less for anyone, where that really does mean um, the kinds of solidarity dividends uh, that, that we are seeing grassroots and green shoots of across the country, but really for everyone. Well, on behalf of the San Francisco Commonwealth Club, we are so grateful to you, Heather McGee, for spending an hour with us to talk about the Some of Us and congratulations on the Higher Ground podcast. And I also want to thank the audience for watching and for your wonderful participation. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit Commonwealth Club dot org slash events. Thank you and stay safe. Everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.